Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. TV comedian Volodymyr Zelensky finished on top in a crowded field in the first round of the Ukraine presidential election. It's a case of fiction becoming reality. Zelensky's popular show, Servant of the People, features Zelensky in the role of a corruption-fighting high school teacher who wins the Ukrainian presidency. Also moving into the second round is the incumbent president, Petro Poroshenko. He finished a distant second with 15 percent to Zelensky's 30 percent. With me is William J. Reich. He's an associate professor of history at Georgia College and State University. He's the author of The Ukrainian West, Culture and the Fate of Empire in Soviet Lviv. Thanks a lot for joining me, William Reich. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. You know, it's a really interesting election here in Ukraine. There were plenty of candidates to choose from. There were security guys. There's the incumbent president. Um, and voters went with the TV comedian. Uh, what are what kind of message are they sending here? I'm afraid that the message they're sending is probably an indictment against the past five years in Ukraine. The... Euromaidan revolution, as we call it today, seemed to offer a lot of promises to at least half of the population, uh, a fight for the rule of law, uh, for an end to corruption, for more transparent government. All those things seemed to be there when the previous presidency was overthrown, the presidency of Viktor Yanukovych. And when Poroshenko was elected, it seemed like he was going to offer those changes, at least to those people who believed in this revolution. He talked about how uh, we would live, we would live in a new way, living in a new way. But unfortunately, in the past several years, it doesn't seem like he's been able to appeal to the rest of the population. Only in the case of fighting the war with Russia, in a general sense, maybe that's united the the country, but. The corruption under Poroshenko has probably gotten worse, and uh, it does seem that the reforms that he did try and implement with the help of, of Parliament have only been perhaps cosmetic, although some changes may produce long-term results, but it's been extremely dissatisfied for many Ukrainians now, as uh, much as 20 yeah you know sorry. why why does it why did they turn to Zelensky then for the the antidote to this because it would seem that he even though he depicts a, a, a corruption fighting guy on television is on a network that is owned by a oligarch Igor Kolomoisky who is uh, an arch rival of um, the current president. They're bitterly involved in, in his banking interests and lives outside the country. He would seem to be the epitome of, of the thing you would not want to vote for in a way. Well, that's very much true. The, the one thing that Zelensky has going for him is that he is this new face, because if you look at all of the other candidates, they are just as un- they are even more unappealing than Poroshenko at this point. Yulia Timoshenko, who has her own criminal past. Yuri Boyko, who openly collaborates with Russia. You have Anatoly Khritsenko, uh, a man involved in the security services who uh, may have authoritarian tendencies, doesn't really appeal to a lot of voters beyond the educated elites, and that's just the top five. And then you go further down the list, and you do have people that 
at one point or another, have been involved in a very corrupt state, a kleptocracy that's been around for the past quarter century. And none of those people are quite clean, mildly speaking. Uh, and, and so who else is left? And the, the funny thing is that Zelensky is just such a blank slate. He literally proposed to the citizens of Ukraine, write the electoral program for me. I want to hear your voices and let's put together a presidential program together. And so, yes, he does have these connections with Kolomoisky, but on the other hand, he's really the only person closest to being outside the system that's there on the, the list of candidates, really. So, I mean, is this in a way a fantasy vote by, by people in Ukraine? It's, it's a vote for a, the fantasy president. It's like if we had voted for Martin Sheen in the West Wing or something. Well, you could say that. I think also it is a protest vote uh, because one thing that, you know, the Ukrainian voters have been divided over issues such as historical memory, language policies, and all those kinds of things relations between Russia and the European Union, uh, those kinds of, uh, or NATO or, or the European Union. But the one thing that they all agree on is this fight over, to, to fight corruption and to replace the current political class with a new one. And the truth is that the Euromaidan activists who led that revolution together with politicians None of those people turned out to be a, a suitable politician, a suitable leader of this new generation, these new faces that people wanted. And Zelensky seems to be the only one who's it. Uh, really. You mentioned some of the language issues in Ukraine, and, and Zelensky is someone who uh, spoke in, la in Russian language on his TV show a lot, and the he seems to have campaigned in Russian a lot, uh, and appealed to a lot of Russian-speaking Ukrainians. Uh, and the breakdown of the voting didn't look um, what is stereotypical about Ukraine, East-West. He right. kind of created a new coalition, a lot of young people. Yes. Uh, th there was like a whole different thing going on this time. Absolutely. One of the things about the electoral map, which is so surprising, is Zelensky unites Ukraine more than any of the, the politicians on the list. The, the the areas that voted for Zelensky, they're in the center of Ukraine, they're in the west of Ukraine, they're in the south of Ukraine, and to some degree also in the east. This is this is this is somebody who uh, probably represents more of the Ukrainians that we probably didn't see on the Maidan, but some of them were probably people who speak both Russian and Ukrainian, who are interested in travel abroad. I'm speaking of the younger generation in particular. Um, people who uh, want a more just system and yet aren't really driven by these, these rather obscure debates on historical memory, who our national heroes should be, uh, what language should be the official should be the language of public life. You know, these are people that switch back and forth between languages all the time. And really, Zelensky is one of those who can do it and has shown it in, in at least a few television appearances, maybe not on his show, but uh, elsewhere for sure. 
I'm talking with William Reich. He's Associate Professor of History at Georgia College and State University. And we're talking about the elections over the weekend in Ukraine. They had 39 candidates, narrowed it down to the top two. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky is a TV personality who had a 30% showing and won first and 15% for Petro Poroshenko, the incumbent. Um, One more thing about his TV show and things. Most people probably haven't seen it. It's on Netflix now and it's pretty interesting. Uh, He does things like have fantasy sequences where he shoots up the Ukrainian parliament, shoots all the people in the Ukrainian parliament with machine guns. He also has a fan or a real sequence where he talks with the IMF and goes to a press conference and very dramatically tells the man at the IMF to take a you know take a hike in so many words at this press conference and you know they're not going to bow to the IMF demands and things. He 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 fulfills um, it's a wish fulfillment fantasy not just of anti-corruption, but anti-Western, some kind of anti-Western control thing. Well, really, the fantasies you describe here are indeed real ones, and I wouldn't describe them as anti-Western. I would describe them as pro-Ukraine, standing up for a sovereign, independent nation-state that is not dependent on world markets, it's not dependent on supranational structures such as the IMF and perhaps also others such as NATO or the, the European Union, but most, most importantly the IMF because the IMF has, has mandated this rigorous austerity program that has affected so many people. Maybe the reforms the IMF uh, have made on paper sound rational and, and good for the long term uh, developments in Ukraine, but they've cost people dearly. Pensions go, going down by half, uh, utilities such as gas prices going up three times while pensions go down by half. Uh, you have a population where 25% of the workforce lives and works abroad. It's really unprecedented. That many people, a quarter of the population, work outside Ukraine, those who are able-bodied. And it was um, it fell into the poorest country in Europe category. Yes, recently. Yes, it did. It so did. it's no wonder people are voting for change, right? And I think you know one issue also is the war, and the war with Russia. I think it's important to note that many people would like to see the reincorporation of Donbass into Ukraine, but they they also would like the war to end. And there may be some people that actually buy into Zelensky's uh, strategy, that it is a good idea to have some peaceful negotiations with Russia. Would they honestly take place? It's a big question. But in some respects, uh, I think Zelensky reflects some values Ukrainians share that perhaps we've, we've overlooked in the events of the last five years, the the war with Russia, the struggle for freedom on Kiev's main square, the Maidan, and all those things. So, and Poroshenko, the current president, has pitched himself as a guy who will stand up to Russia as the only guy who can stand up to Russia, which is a recipe for perpetual war, I guess. Well, it uh, it, it is a, uh, a recipe for perpetual war, but more than that, he demonized all of his opponents. He said there's one uh, political 
campaign poster, one political slogan that was, it's either Poroshenko or Putin. And frankly, that meant all of those 39, 40-some candidates are all fifth columnists, supporters of Putin, useful idiots of Putin, whatever you want to call them. And frankly, it would, I would imagine it would offend all those people who express preferences for those other candidates. I really don't know how Petro Poroshenko can unite this country if he continues to demonize his opponents and use the war with Russia to say that he's the only viable politician for that country. Although there are definitely questions about Zelensky and his qualifications. I wonder if you could talk a little about the U.S. and um, and Europe and what they would prefer to see in a European or, or Ukrainian leader. Um, Poroshenko seems to be the favorite of the United States, and they they would seem to want to keep doing business with him. Is is that about the size of it? I would imagine that they would, and Poroshenko can be very charming as a politician. Speaks excellent English, unlike previous presidents of that country. But unfortunately, um, I think many in the West are quite aware of his half-hearted attempts to stem the tide of corruption, to deal with corruption. And the other problem, too, is really that crimes go unpunished in Ukraine. Activists have been beaten up. Uh, right-wing militants have attacked uh, Roma and LGBT uh, activists and others and go unpunished and actually have friends and connections in the law enforcement organs. Uh, there's just uh, there's so much nepotism and, 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 and uh, kleptocracy, st- elements of kleptocracy still in, U- in Ukraine that I, I, I think the West is quite aware of, of those problems. And yet they still want Poroshenko for what? Well, they want to keep Ukraine together. I think the whole point is stability, that at least there is one leader who has the political experience and can keep this country from falling apart. That seems to be the only reason why the people would support Poroshenko at this point, because they would see that without him, the country would fall apart. I think that's very alarmist. And actually there are possibilities for a weak presidency and a strong parliamentary system. Should Zelensky become president, because we would see parliament actually taking up the, uh, the, the authority, the powers that they actually had in the 2004 constitution that Ukraine returned to when Yanukovych was removed as president. Uh, Ukraine is supposed to have a strong parliamentary system and a weak presidency. We've forgotten about that. Uh, Poroshenko has created a strong presidency in defiance of the 2004 constitution. Is one of the things that people were voting for, it seems like there was more anti-oligarch uh, sentiment in, in this election. Is that true? Do you feel like there is a true movement now against the oligarchy among the people? I think it's always been there, though. I mean, it's been there since the 2004 Orange Revolution. It was there during the Euromaidan. It was there after that. If you really want to take a look at things more broadly— the people who in the Donbass region 
uh, rose up against the state with Russian help, they too had activists who were very much against the oligarchs and against the local clans in the Donbass region. So really, I, I'm not surprised at all. It's a, it's a constant in Ukrainian politics. This oligarchy that seems to stymie the country, hold it back from developing, prevent the growth of the middle class, prevent the unification of Ukraine. These oligarch clans have played on regional divisions and made them worse. So, yes. One of the other interesting things about the election, I mean, there are 39 candidates. There was an extreme right candidate, and Ukraine is sometimes depicted as a place where the extreme right is uh, growing and, and getting a footing. But uh, the extreme right candidate got 1.8%, 1.7% of the vote, something ridiculously small. Right. Uh, Ruslan Koshlinsky of the Svoboda Party. Uh, yeah, he had a very weak showing. I think... When you look at Ukraine's problems, if it had, if uh, right-wing extremism is a problem in the country, it's not really uh, in connection with uh, electoral support for a certain party or a candidate. It's more about a problem with uh, certain groups that have influence over law enforcement and security, and those people uh, make use of that power and cause problems for civil society and uh, do acts of violence and intimidation. All right. But it's in general good to see a country that has the extreme economic challenges that Ukraine has and that the, a, a candidate from the extreme right does not, does not right. bounce up. Right. It, seems does to go against the, it goes against the trend. It does definitely go against the trend. Uh, there are worries that should Zelensky become president, maybe the 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 far right would benefit, and and you would see an increased support for for far right political parties and movements and so on. But at this point, it doesn't really look like it. Well, we'll keep in touch, and we'll maybe chat again about the uh, second round of the election as it comes up here in a few weeks. William Reich is Associate Professor of History at Georgia College and State University. He's the author of The Ukrainian West, The Culture and the Fate of the Empire in Soviet Lviv. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about violence and uh, violence in urban environments. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Low-income neighborhoods the world over have issues with state-sponsored violence, organized crime, and interpersonal violence. 
Javier Aullero is a professor of Latin American sociology and director of the Urban Ethnography Lab at the University of Texas, Austin. He's done long-term research on a community in Buenos Aires, and he's speaking in Chicago about what he's learned at the Pearson Institute for the Study of and Resolution of Global Conflicts. There's a Pearson lunch and learn tomorrow at the Harris School at the University of Chicago. Thanks a lot for joining us, Javier. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about the community that you've been studying. Well, the community is a low-income community, uh, formerly a sort of working-class neighborhood, you know, hundreds and thousands of people uh, living there. It has parts uh, of, you know, well-established neighborhood parts, shanty towns and slums, parts, uh, squatter settlements. Uh, And it's a sort of high-crime uh, area that has been, you know, crime and violence has been increasing in the last two decades as it has been increasing throughout poor areas in most of Latin America. I don't know if uh, you know this, but, you know, Latin America is probably the only region uh, where lethal violence as measured by homicide rates has been increasing without being at war in the last two decades. So we decided to do research in this area to see basically what form violence uh, takes and why uh, why they increase. And, um, you know, I was looking at uh, some videos in uh, – I put in the neighborhood – I might be mispronouncing it – in Haro Buhe uh, is, mm-hmm, is the mm-hmm. neighborhood. And, mm-hmm. I, and one popped up and they showed somebody opening up with a machine gun, a, a very – a uh, serious news report was uh, was right. like, holy smokes, look mm-hmm. at this. A guy has opened up with a machine gun. We've got security camera video of it uh, on uh-huh. the street. Uh, it was kind of amazing. That was a, an interesting case because that, that was a follow-up of uh, a neighbor that we know uh, went to the police precinct to denounce that his street has been, had become very hot with uh, drug trade. Uh, next thing he knows, after going to the police station next thing he knows is that the dealers made this huge display uh, then recorded the the shooting on whatsapp and uh, broadcasted uh, all over the and, oh, and it made national news so it was themselves. it was it's interesting that you you notice that because it's it's a way in which you know part of the problem in this neighborhood is that uh, residents cannot go to the police uh, to deal with the issue of increasing uh, drug trade because the police is in cahoots with the drug dealers. All right. Um, now, that's not uncommon in mm-hmm. other places in the world. This is something that is is regular. I mean, pe- people in most low-income communities probably don't trust the police. Right. And, you know, people, uh, researchers here uh, in in the U.S. coined this term sort of legal cynicism to refer to, you know, mostly sort of brown and black communities uh, profoundly distrust the police. The source of that distrust is different, though. They distrust the police because they can be brutal, abusive. But for the most part, they don't suspect that, you know, cops, although there are cases, and Chicago is well known for that, and so in New York City, but as an institution, most residents don't suspect that uh, cops and, and narcs, or, or as they call in Argentina, narcops, are colluding on a daily basis. And so the, the distrust might be similar, but the sort of origins of that distrust is, is quite different. How does that uh, 
factor into other types of violence that the neighborhood experiences? Because the organized mm-hmm. crime guys are doing violence. There is just people-to-people interpersonal violence that happens mm-hmm. in a neighborhood. So if you've got a mistrust of the police, how does that have action with the other two? That's that's a very interesting question. And what, that was a sort of subject of, you know, 30 months of, of research that we published in this book in, in harm's way because what we typically find is, you know, there are – uh, episodes of what we could call sort of private or, or domestic violence, you know, parents hitting their kids or a husband hitting their wives. And then you have the, what is called the systemic violence of the drug trade, you know, dispute between uh, drug dealers, retaliation for stealing drugs, those kind of things that we are familiar with even by sort of watching, you know, a series on TV that we know that, that, that the drug trade, not always, but oftentimes is quite violent. What we were not prepared to to find, and we actually found, is how these two forms of violence connect with one another. So let me give you just you know one example: parents who use di- uh, violence to discipline their kids, because precisely because they cannot trust the police, and so when the police betrays what is right, uh, then you you know we we made the effort to put ourselves in the shoes. Uh, of parents who's like, what what can they do to make sure that their kids are not uh, in danger? Uh, then there are other issues when, uh, for example, when drug dealers enter homes in search of other drug market participants, or when family members seek to protect themselves and each other from repeated, you know, uh, theft. For example, you know, uh, kids steal items from their homes to then, you know, buy or sell drugs or participate in the, in the drug market. So there are many sort of pathways through which the public violence of the drug trade enters uh, the homes and becomes domestic disputes, quite violent uh, domestic disputes, but, they are, but they, are, they are very much connected to what is going on in the drug trade and itself very much connected to what the police is doing or is not doing. It seems like a lot of times we connect the interpersonal violence kind of more towards, I don't know what, poverty or something. We think that's Mm -hmm. the thing. And we Mm -hmm. measure the violence of a community by the number of homicides in the community. Mm -hmm. Is that that the – are we just approaching it the right way or should we be taking a more larger look at what the heck violence really means in the community? In fact, you know, there's no single sort of variable that shows, okay, you know, uh, communities are violent because of X. You know, it certainly is, you know, has to do with what sociologists call the accumulation of structural disadvantages, poverty being one, but it also has to do with unemployment, with inequality, with the lack of collective efficacy, you know, with the power that the community has, with the absence of social infrastructure, in the cases of uh, many communities, many poor communities in Latin America, uh, the drug trade is an in- intricate uh, part of this. It, it is true. I mean, uh, the, what, what we call the sort of stratification of violence, that it tends to cluster in poor communities, is certainly not a Latin American uh, phenomenon. I was looking, in preparation for this, I was looking about you know, st- stats on violence in, in Chicago, and, you know, the increase of violence in the last two or three years in Chicago also clusters in the most sort of poor communities in the south and, and the west sides. So um, it's, it's certainly not a Latin American phenomenon. 
it is also true, and uh, I'm glad you asked that we don't, you know, just to reduce measurements of violence to homicide rates is is very partial because there are other forms of violence, and it's a very well, again, what sociologists call a very masculinist uh, understanding of what violence is, you know, homicide. And so it tends to over-register uh, male-on-male violence and under-register other forms of violence, domestic disputes, uh, parental disputes, et cetera, et cetera, that uh, pretty much don't make it to the, to the homicide rates, but they are very present in these communities. If violence is a more fluid thing... Is approaching violence as a kind of uh, like a medical outbreak of violence, is that a, a solid approach? Is that the way you should think about it as, well, we've got an epidemic of violence in this community. It is, it is coming from all these sources. It is penetrating everyone's lives and, mm-hmm. and we have to stop it. I don't. I, I don't know. You know, as a sociologist, I look. I, I, I look at violence. Is is this multi-dimensional uh, phenomenon? So we need to, you know, mobilize as many tools as we as we can to to understand this. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't call it sort of epidemic, but it is. It is certainly true that it is affecting uh, certain groups more than others, and there has there is a reason for that affecting more. I mean, these people who are on top of everything, they're suffering all sorts of issues. On top of this, they're suffering w- from high rates of violence, and in part, the reason for them suffering uh, these high rates of violence has a lot to do with what the state is and that at these uh, margins of, uh, of society. And we tend to think that the state is there to sort of placate and diminish violence, but in fact, it's very much complicit with the, you know, really high rates of violence. So if you had advice for reducing violence in these <laughs> low-income communities, what, would it be mostly state-oriented? I, you know... Uh, what the, the the form of policing certainly in uh, Latin American communities and the form of policing in the states is certainly not helping. Uh, th- that that we know. Um, there are other. There are certainly other issues that has to do with how to mediate these conflicts. How do we intervene on forms of addictions? How do we uh, make sure that families don't have to travel an hour and a half one way? To ask to to you know to ask for some sort of solution to the addiction of a kid, and an hour and a half the other way to mediate a conflict with their husbands. So there are sort of if violence is a multidimensional phenomena, uh, the solution to violence will be a, a, a multidimensional uh, one. And so there are many sort of uh, initiatives and attempts throughout you know Latin America that have been trying to deal with this you know very tricky uh, phenomenon of how to address the issue of violence. And, it, you know, you're fond of any particular one? Is there somebody who's doing it right? You know, there are, uh, there's a, there are cases in Colombia, for example, that they try, and, you know, Colombia has suffered, you know, really high uh, um, uh, episodes and still has uh, episodes of violence. They're, they're called the Houses of Peace, and, and they, are, they concentrate all forms of intervention in the communities, and with all sorts of specialists in addictions, in family therapy, mediation with uh, police forces, etc., in one institution. Uh, and that seems to be one way uh, of doing it. Certainly, it, it is not if we only trust 
certainly not in the case of uh, the cases I know better in Argentina, if we only trust the police to solve this issue, it's a recipe for disaster because they are part of the problem. They're not part of the solution. Javier Ollero is a professor of Latin American sociology and director of the Urban Ethnography Lab at the University of Texas, Austin. Austin, his latest book is In Harm's Way, Interpersonal Violence at the Urban Margins, which he co-authored. And you can meet him tomorrow at the Pearson Lunch at the Harris School at 1245 at the Harris School of Public Policy on the University of Chicago campus in uh, on 60th Street there in Keller Room 1002. Thanks a lot for joining us. Nice talking with you, Javier Aullero. Thank you so very much. Coming up after the break, WBEZ's Monica Ng will tell us where we can get our insect protein. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Conventional meat production is hard on the environment. So today, lots of conscious eaters are seeking out alternative proteins. This can mean beans and peas, but also bugs. For more than a decade, the United Nations food arm has been looking into insects as a way to feed a growing world population. What does this look like on the ground? Could this ever take off with Westerners? WBEZ's Monica Eng recently went out with Worldview's Ashish Valentine and the Field Museum's Margaret Thayer to eat some bugs. Thanks, Jerome. So on a recent sunny Wednesday morning, I took the train to Uptown, where I was going to meet Worldview intern Ashish Valentine and Field Museum Emerita entomologist Margaret Thayer for some delicious insect eating. When I got there, though, I got some bad news. They are not open. Apparently, the weekend hours are the times they're open. So we did what any other bug seekers would do. We put up the antennae, we looked for more places to eat insects, hopped in a cab, and flew off to Albany Park. And we talked about bugs on the way. So, Margaret, thanks so much for joining us on this little adventure. Yeah, it's an adventure for me, too. I've never sought out insects to eat, although I'm used to, I'm used to traveling around the world seeking them out for research, but different kinds. Hey there, little insect. So our first stop, we, we struck out. The Oaxacan restaurant on Sheridan is not honoring its hours that are posted on the website. And their chapulines, or grasshoppers, may be seasonal in any case. Looks like we found two good leads in Albany Park, Rojo Gusano and La Ordeña Cremeria, too. And so we're going to see if we can find some bugs there. But on our way, why don't you tell us what is kind of the history of people eating insects in other cultures? In most cultures outside the Western world, um, insects have been eaten for centuries and centuries and centuries. It's basically kind of a normal thing. It's free food is, is one way of looking at it. They're, they're there, and uh, some of them come out in very large numbers at one time, so that makes it a very uh, efficiently harvestable resource. 
and they're full of protein and fat and therefore calories and that's something that uh, most people again outside of the western culture really need so it makes sense to eat them there do seem to be strong differences among cultures in exactly what insects are eaten. You would have different species in any case, different species of, say, bugs in Laos and in uh, Ecuador. Yeah, in, uh, in Asia, I see beetles a lot. Um, in Korea, the pupa of silkworms. Right, yeah. But largely in, in Mexico, I do see a lot of grasshoppers. Yeah, I think uh, beetles are the most commonly eaten kind of insect, but there are 400,000 different kinds of beetles in the world, so there are a lot to choose from. (laughs) Choose your beetle. And then I think ants, ants and wasps and bees, mostly their larvae, not the adults, are next most widely eaten. And then grasshoppers and crickets are, are the next thing. Why would the larvae be more desirable in some areas? Well, two things. One, as far as a lot of those hymenoptera, the wasps, bees, and ants go, the larvae don't sting. Uh, (laughs) I'd rather eat a bee larvae than than get a stinger in my tongue. But also, they're soft. They're not hard on the outside. They still have an exoskeleton, but it's a soft exoskeleton. And so they're just a little blob that develops in the nest. And the other thing is they are generally, the ones that are eaten, are concentrated in nests. They're nests of social insects. And so there'll be a whole bunch together. If you think of a beehive or a hornet nest or something like that, you harvest the whole nest, pull out all those larvae, and you get a whole bunch. So it's, again, a matter of uh, practicality. It's, right. it's very efficient. Okay. And so, you know, people are talking about insects as sustainable protein for even places like the United States. What are some of the barriers that you see to that? Well, the biggest one is probably cultural, the ick factor. Because yeah. in our culture, uh, people have been raised to think that, oh, insects are yucky and gross and spread disease, and they're just icky. At least people, once they're beyond, say, the age of four or five, kids are usually fascinated by insects. And <laughs> yeah, I know people who put pill bugs in their mouth when they were uh, five years old, like my brothers. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but kids then get socialized away from the whole idea of doing anything with insects. Fortunately, that's changing, and there's a lot more interest in insects than there used to be. But as far as food, I think there's still a significant ick factor. But one thing that may help is the fact that they are a much more efficiently producible source of nutrition than our typical livestock, cattle, eggs, sheep, chickens. And so as more and more people become aware of and care about the environmental impact of our regular livestock industry, they may be more willing to entertain the idea of, oh, well, maybe we could try eating some insects, perhaps especially if they're roasted into flour and just ground up and we don't really know they're there. (laughs) Yeah, you're seeing that more and more with uh, cricket flour products. Is there a decent amount of protein or fat in these insects? Uh, There is. I've read a little bit about that and saw sort of conflicting results, but it is a good solid source of protein and fat. And in terms of the energy and water that are required to produce that food, it's enormously more efficient than even chickens. I mean, chickens are relatively efficient, but insects are a lot more efficient than even chickens and way, way, way more efficient than beef cattle. So does this mean that as we're walking outside and we see a grasshopper, we should just grab it and throw it in our pie? Or what kind of precautions would people want to take? Well, if you're doing that, there are some potential hazards. And if you're just picking up a random grasshopper, especially in the city, it could have a bunch of 
microorganisms, bacteria, and things on it. Uh, it could have pesticide residues on it. And so one of the concerns in raising insects for food is avoiding problems like that. But the other thing is that if you were in a situation where you were needing to harvest and eat wild insects, uh, cooking them would be a good thing because that would at least kill off bacteria and I guess washing them to maybe get rid of at least some pesticide residues. If they had absorbed the pesticides inside them, then you couldn't really get away from that. And I think that's something that's kind of being studied now, mm-hmm. how to guard against that and how serious a problem it is. Right. So tell me, as we approach Albany Park, uh, how are you feeling about eating some of your first intentional insects? Uh, well, I'm curious to see what they'll be like. I have eaten some occasionally before, but it's been quite a while. I, yeah, I find that mostly they taste like uh, fried exoskeleton and whatever spice they put on top of it. Yeah, there's not a lot of flavor. I think one exception to that might be there are a lot of grubs, which are basically larvae of big beetles. Those are kind of big, fat, heavy things. And juicy inside. Yeah, it's sort of juicy inside. And those are often roasted. And I've heard that those can taste sort of like, oh, a little bit like roasted peanuts or something. So you'd get a little browning fat flavor. I remember when we had missionary week at our church and I was growing up, we had a missionary who um, was in Borneo and she would talk about eating the grubs. And um, and I said to my dad, I don't want to be a missionary. I do not want to eat all those worms, dad. (laughs) But one time I was water skiing and a fly got in my mouth and I did eat that. That happens sometimes. I've had that happen too. But I shouldn't worry. I mean, it's not like one fly is going to... No, one fly is not going to do anything to you. (laughs) Phew! Well, that was good to know. I turned off the recorder for a bit and turned it back on when we finally arrived in Albany Park and got to Rojo Gusano, only to find that their online restaurant hours were wrong, too. Our intern, Ashish, was not happy. The thing with Chapulines restaurants is you can never trust the hours. Yeah, we've arrived at restaurant two that's supposed to be serving up those uh, grasshoppers and uh, struck out. Looks like we're going to Cremaria La Ordeña. When we walked in, we saw all these cool, clear bulk boxes of dry goods up front. Look at all these nice snacks and dates and chilies and cinnamon and seeds and brown sugar, the piloncillos, amaranth, amaranth with honey granola, pumpkin seeds. Then we walked back further to the cold cases and the clerk reached in and pulled out a clear plastic box of roasted and seasoned grasshoppers called chapulines in Spanish. At last, chapulines. Here's what they sound like in the uh, container. But that's not all they had back there. House-made chorizo and house-made yogurt, sausages and marinated meats and cheeses, and then stuff to make your own mole at home. Mole Michoacana, Mole Poblano con ajonjoli, Mole Especial, Mole Verde en Pasta, Mole Verde Picosos, Adobo en Pasta, Pipián Rojo en Pasta. Wow, I'm going to take some pictures of all these moles. Which you can see on the Worldview Facebook page today. When we got to the checkout line, I asked the clerk in Spanish, what's the best way to enjoy these little critters? Sal, limon, she said you could eat them with salt and lime and nothing else, or in tacos, or on top of guacamole. Tacos, eh, guacamole. Ah, uh-huh. Okay. Buena combinación. Muchas gracias. De nada. 
So where would we find a place like that? I was intrigued. When we walked outside, and right next door, there's this place called Salsa's Grill. Okay, terrible name. But on the window, it said handmade tortillas. And that was a good sign, right? The menu looked pretty good. So I got ready to order a few things, but I was pretty afraid of what our server would say when I told him I wanted to put some bugs in the food. I think we're going to get an order of guacamole, and then I think we're going to have four tacos, the pastor, the asada, cochinita, and the uh, camarón. And uh, we were next door, and we bought some chapulines. Is it okay if we put some chapulines in our guacamole? Yeah, you want me to do that for you? You oh. have the chapulines? Yeah, sure. Did you hear that? Our server, George, was totally unfazed. He even volunteered to toast up the bugs and place them in the food for us. Yeah. Oh, they're pretty good, but they're yeah. not... Warm, warmed up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. thank you. Yeah, that would be, be so nice. Yeah. That'd be great. So, Margaret, we got such nice service. It looks like yeah. we're going to get the chapulines warmed up for us. Yeah, that's nice. I'm excited. And finally, the first course arrived. So, Margaret, our chapulines studded guacamole has arrived. Along with some nice soup, uh, what's your first impression? They look fairly appetizing sitting there in the guacamole, kind of spread out instead of being in a, a mass in a, in a box. Some of them are sort of diving headfirst into the guacamole and others are coming out. <laughs> so they're, some are up and some are down. <laughs> it's like they're having a, a grasshopper swimming party. Yeah, yeah. I guess the question is whether we want to try them with the guacamole and chips first or put some in the soup too or... Yeah, let's go crazy and try both. Okay. Some people don't like on-mic chewing. I love it, and it really kind of gives you an idea of the texture of the food. So if you don't like it, I would say tune out for just a second, because we're going to do some on-mic chewing. Here I go. Yeah, the crunchiness seems to be just the chips. I'm going to do just a crunch of the chapulín. Hey there, little insect. Don't scare me so. It's a different crunch from the super crunchy chip. They're a little bit salty. Yeah, they've got a kind of a tangy, salty seasoning. And you noted something about some hind legs being removed? This one does have one of its hind legs, but most of them, the legs are completely off. It may just happen. Mm. They dry them out, and then as they're getting tumbled around, the legs would just get broken off. That's a functional thing, because the legs would be just extra crunchy without much additional nutrition. Could stick in your teeth. That's right. I think I'll try one of these in my soup. We're going to have to resist or not the joke of, <laughs> waiter. Wait, waiter, there's a bug in my soup. Here we go. So we can have fun and fool around. It's a little salty, peppery, and I guess there's a little bit of umami, which I would, I guess, be from the uh, the grilling of the, uh, the chapulines initially, getting their, their fats and their proteins and everything browned a little bit. Oh, I like that. Excellent soup. And then you get that little tang and crunch, like a crouton, like a tangy yeah. crouton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're good. Okay, so you just scooped one up in your soup. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, good. So given this, what do you think? Do you think this might be a good introduction to insect eating for uh, squeamish North Americans? Possibly. If you look at them, they're, they're sort of shriveled enough that if you're not an entomologist, you might not recognize what they are. To an entomologist, they're quite clearly grasshoppers <laughs> without their legs. But they're not as crunchy as I expected. They're, they're a little bit soft. And so that eliminates one of the problems that people sometimes have with arthropods or insects that are really crunchy. It's a little can be a little bit off-putting. If you eat them with something even crunchier like tortilla chips, well, you don't even know this. But uh, yeah, they could be a pretty good thing.
And uh, I think you're a very brave soul to do this, but for others who want to eat crickets, that might be an easier start, just Mm -hmm. ground-up flour. Right, yeah. They're making things with ground-up mealworms, which are a kind of beetle, and ground-up crickets. And so, yeah, it's possible to consume insect protein and vitamins and things without having to confront the the whole insect body. (laughs) But for those of us who are a little braver, we can have them in our guacamole and our soup. That's right. So we can have fun and fool around. Margaret Thayer, curator emerita of insects at the Field Museum, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, it's been fun. Now I do not want to worry, insect. I do not want to fight. I'm fine. Well, I don't want to worry about a potential insect fight. I don't. No way. Now I don't want to worry. So please calm down So we can have fun and fool around That's WBEZ's Monica Eng, the Field Museum's Margaret Thayer, and Worldview's Ashish Valentine on the prowl for insects. Come back next week, and uh, we're going to have Monica walk my dog while he eats dozens of cicadas at it, and then she'll share cicadas with my animal tomorrow next week. Uh, so lots of fun with Monica and bugs. Uh, Did you know that you can listen to the Worldview Podcast whenever and wherever you want? Subscribe to the Worldview Podcast at the iTunes Store, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast, or you can go to wbez.org slash worldview and click subscribe there. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to celebrate Election Day with lots of talk about democracy. We're going to find out the easiest way to fix the Electoral College. We're going to find out about the effort to fix gerrymandering. And we are going to talk with constitutional scholars about how to save a constitutional democracy. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. And thank you to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.